Let's learn. Parsha's Ekev. So we're going to start on page 982. It's not the very beginning of the Parsha, but it's still within the first Aliyah of the Parsha. Um, as I mentioned many times, Sefer Devarim, the entire, this last book, is a series of speeches that Moshe Rabbeinu gives, and they, know, they require no commentary. The words themselves speak for themselves. Nobody, like, uh, it just, they flow. Moshe's giving us a heartfelt series of talks, and you just really need to re- read the words. So we're going to do that. We will add a few comments along the way. This particular passage that we are going to read together, we'll get through hopefully five, six, seven verses, uh, is a little bit of his review of the idea of wandering for 40 years. The classroom, if you will, of what we experienced of being taken through a desert. There's so many different things that he talks about, obviously, over the 40 years. This particular passage is simply going to focus on the concept that we spent such a long, significant amount of time in a desert, which is an inhospitable place, and what we learned and gained and took from that for all, for all of our history's sake, for everything that we would need until today from that lesson. So let's learn a little bit uh, what he has to say. So it's uh, the beginning of Parakhas, the eighth chapter, page 982. Here we go. Kol ha-mitzvah, says Moshe Rabbeinu, kol ha-mitzvah, hayom, Tishmerun la'aso. So his opening line is, all, uh, all of the mitzvot that I have commanded you to do today, make sure that you are careful to observe them. Lema'an tichyun urvisem uvasem v'rishtem esa'art asher nishpah Hashem la'avosechem. In order that you tichyun, that you live, urvisem, and that you should increase your numbers, you should grow and expand. And you'll come and then inherit the land that Hashem has sworn. So this, uh, within this couple of things to talk about within this opening line, Pasuk, if you just take a look, the very beginning of the next Pasuk, but remember this road, remember this path. So before we get to that part in which he's going to say, remember what we just did, he opens up with this line of, keep all the mitzvahs that I've been commanding you for the last 40 years. Moshe has been teaching us. That's what he's been doing since our Sinai. Every day is giving shir, teaching us a new mitzvah, going through all that we need to know. And he says, be careful with them. Tishmarun, be careful to observe them that you should live and increase and come and inherit the land. Hashem has sworn. Hashem has sworn this land to your father. So first of all, it's very interesting. We find this concept many times. If Hashem swore that he was going to give the land, and he swore that to Avram and to Yitzchak and to Yaakov, and to each one of them, he swore, I'm going to give this land to you and your children. One might have thought that when Hashem himself takes such an oath that he's going to do such a thing, I, the child, have no responsibility other than to receive the oath that he promised. That's what one might have thought. Hashem swore to Abraham, I'm going to give the children this land. So I, the child, you know, give it to me. I'm ready. But how does Moshe phrase this? In order to receive the land that Hashem swore to Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, there's a first half of that sentence, and that is... Don't forget about all these mitzvahs that he just commanded you. And we have here this relationship, this, which we've seen, we're living it. Uh, the last 2,000 years of Jewish history outside the land of Israel, in which even though there is an oath that Hashem swore to give it to Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, it's predicated on this mitzvah that I commanded you to do. Don't forget about the mitzvahs in order that you inherit the land that Hashem swore to Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov that you'll get. And we still living outside the land, still in the exile, 
in the diaspora. That's the, the you know, we didn't fulfill our part of the bargain. The base of Mikdash was destroyed two times, and we're still trying to get there. Half of world, we say this all the time, half of the world Jewish population has made their way home. We're, we're working towards it. We're almost back. But this was the promise. It's a, it's a relationship. You do, we do our part, and Hashem will do, uh, Hashem will do His. Okay, Rashi has a comment. The very first two words are a little odd in this phrase. If Moshe wanted to tell us to observe all of the commandments, what word should he have used? What conjugation of the idea of a mitzvah should he have said? Exactly, very good. It should have been in plural. All of the mitzvahs. Or if you wanted to drop the hay in the beginning, you could have gotten away with kol mitzvah, it would have also meant the same thing. Kol ha-mitzvah actually means something very specific. Right? It means... The one mitzvah that I... Make sure you keep that. That's a strange phrase. When the idea is clearly he's telling us to keep all of the mitzvahs, but he uses a word which implies the entire, the mitzvah, do all of it. Kol ha-mitzvah, do the whole mitzvah. So Rashi, as he often does, from the sages, peeling away layers of the onion. Yeah, in the simple meaning, Moshe is simply saying keep all of the mitzvahs. But because of the way that he phrased it, like do all the mitzvah, Rashi points out that there's a lesson here. Chazal say, Im hischalta b'mitzvah, gemoro so If you start a mitzvah, finish it. She'ena nikres ha-mitzvah ela al-shem ha-gomra. Who gets credit for a mitzvah? The one who finishes. If one person starts a task and somebody else finishes it, <coughs> who's going to get the credit for doing the mitzvah? It's the one who finishes it. And therefore, kol... Ha-mitzvah. How do we derive that? Because Moshe says, do all of the mitzvah. And say, like, if you start it, don't, don't drop off halfway through. Make sure somebody else does it. Rashi then brings us a proof. And where do we see this idea? Because when we left Mitzrayim, there was one thing that needed to be taken with us back. If you remember out of Mitzrayim, and remember? Yosef's bones, accent. Yosef made his brothers promise, don't leave me here. Yosef said, whatever, Yosef was the first of, the, of that generation to die. He said, please, please, don't leave me here. You're going to go home one day. You're going to leave. You, not you, but not your children, but your children's children's children are going to leave. And when they do, don't leave me here. I don't want to be stuck here in Mitzrayim. The Torah then very clearly specified that when they were leaving Mitzrayim, all the Jews were running around gathering clothing and the gold and the silver that they were told to take. And only one person was interested in gathering up the bones of Yosef, and that was Moshe. Moshe, the Torah says very specifically, Moshe is the one who took the bones of Yosef with him. Well, what did they do with them? How long did it take him to get there to Israel? 40 years, it took a long time. It wasn't supposed to take that long, but it did. Which means for 40 years, they're schlepping along the Aron, the casket containing the remains of Yosef at Tzadik. But Moshe isn't able to finish this task because Moshe, Moshe never makes it in. So amongst the things that Moshe had to do in his final days is hand off the responsibility of the casket, the Aron of Yosef at Tzadik, to the next generation and say, don't forget, Yosef made us swear that we're going to bury him in Eretz Yisrael. Rashi quotes, the next book after the Chumash, of course, is Sefer Yoshua, the book of Joshua, which describes the entry into the land of Israel. The, ter- the Navi says in Sefer Yoshua, <clears throat> the um, Pesach says as follows, V'yas atzmos Yosef, and the bones of Yosef, asher he'elu b'nei Yisrael mi Mitzrayim, that the Jewish people took out of Mitzrayim, kivru b'shchem, they buried him in the land, the city of Shechem. 
Now, if you read that pasuk carefully, the pasuk says the Atzmos Yosef Asher Helu that were taken out by Bnei Yisrael. Yeah, that's not what the Torah says. The Torah does not say back in Sefer Shmos that it was Bnei Yisrael that took the bones out. The Torah says very clearly it was Moshe. So it should have said the bones that Moshe took out, the Jewish people buried. But it says, no, the Jewish people buried the bones that they took out. So Chazal were very troubled by this pasuk. Because Moshe didn't finish the task. Moshe did not get to complete it. Moshe was not able to bury Yosef. But it was the Jewish people indeed who buried him. Therefore, it's the mitzvah is called as if Bnei Yisrael did the mitzvah. They finished it. As they finished. That's what, that's what the sages derive. Okay, so the question now is why should this be? I would have said a little differently. I would have said, if you did half the job and I did half the job, who should get credit? Uh, that would be the most logical thing because I took us to the 70-yard line. You took us the last 30 yards. Great, good for you. You finished it. But like, don't, don't totally disregard my, my role here. Why is it that Chazal say, no, it's not how it goes. It's not how it goes. The mitzvah is only called based on the person who finished it. So the, it's not fair. I agree. It's not fair, as we say in English. It's not fair. Why should it be? Why should it be that I don't get any credit? So the Moral says two things. One, a very practical, and one, a very <coughs> esoteric thing. Practical thing, he says, is as follows. Imagine you're building a house. That's the goal. You want to build a house. And you have a contractor who you thought you liked, and he's working and working and working. And then, like 90% of the way, he just quits. He says, I don't, you know, I'm not interested. He takes whatever, he paid me the 90%. He's fine. The financials are worked out. He walks away. And you, you come to the house, and it's not livable. There's no front door. The windows aren't in yet. It's like, it's almost done, but it, it's not done. So now you need to hire somebody else. And he finishes up the last little job. So who built the house? So technically, of course, it was built, well, by the first person in my life. But can we say the words, the first person, the first contractor, he built the house. He built a house. What he built wasn't a house. It was almost a house, but it wasn't a house because it wasn't livable, it wasn't done, it wasn't finished. So since he had a role in it, but when you say like, who built this house? So he says in a practical way, if what the first person did wasn't a house, so then we don't give him credit. That's a very practical way of looking at it. That's a, 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 you know, a simple way of doing what you, what you did, you had a role in it, but you, didn't, you can't say you did it. You can't say you did it because you didn't build a house. Then it d- describes a very esoteric idea, which I just want to touch on briefly because it's a little bit beyond my uh, pay grade to understand this particular approach, but I think it's worth it just because it's of interest. He says as follows. In the world we live in, we live in a world of ruchni and gashmi, a world of the spiritual and the world of the physical, because we ourselves are comprised, we speak about this many times, we're a little bit earthly, we like some good pizza and tuna fish and the cookies. And, you know, we complain if it's not exactly the way that we want it because all of that's very physical parts of our being that care whether or not the tuna fish is, you know, with too much mayo or like, who cares in the big scheme of life? No, because we're physical beings. And so we like our creature comforts. It likes things a certain way. But in the other aspect of who we are, the much more important aspect of who we are, we're ruchni, we're spiritual, we're a neshama, we're the, our neshama and our guf, our body and our soul are merged together during our years in this world, and we've got to figure out how to manage the needs of both in which we take care of our bodies, but really we're focusing on, on the learning, not the tuna fish, but what we're learning for our, our spiritual endeavor. Those two elements of our life are fundamentally different in many ways. The spiritual, says Noel, we've spoken about this before as well, is really indivisible. 
it's one singular unit which stems from the concept that Hashem Himself is Echad. It's the essence of one. If you remember when we learned when the Aseris HaDibros were given, we read about them last week, but we learned the, back in Sefer Shmos that Rashi quotes that when Moshe was up on Harsinah and he received the Ten Commandments, Aseris HaDibros, Rashi says they were all said, if anyone remembers, B'dibur Echad. Excellent. They were said in one instant. All ten were comprised in a single millisecond and Moshe receives them all. And then Rashi said, and then Moshe was like, I didn't understand any of that. So Hashem says, yeah, yeah, okay, I'm going to go back over it. And then he did them one at a time. Right? Remember we learned that? It's Rashi and Chumash. Rashi says that. And we asked, Maral asked, what's the point in teaching it to Moshe in one shot if obviously no human being can, he can't hear? I, that doesn't make any sense. And then, so Maral explained then, because really, the essence of Torah, which is the essence of Hashem, is, it is one. So if I would have taught it any other way, when I taught you the first, Anochi Hashem Elokecha, Moshe might have thought, oh, that's it. No, 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 there's more. Oh, then I'll teach him another one. And then it was like, oh, maybe that's it. No, there's more. And at each point, you would think you have it, but you don't, because it's really indivisible. We, human beings, have to learn one word at a time, one pasuk at a time, one chapter at a time. We can learn topics. Let's learn about the laws of Shabbos. Let's learn about the laws of living in the land of Israel. Let's learn about that which applies to a Kohen, to a man, to a woman. We can break things down, but really, at its core, it's one unit. If you don't have the whole thing, you don't, you don't have it. So Hashem couldn't give it any other way as in one, one instance. That's the world of the spirit. And all of Torah is like that. Human beings or physical things are very much divided. Everything is divided up into, it's complete. You could always break things down into further component parts. The shtender is comprised of many different things, a table, a room, a house. The physical world does not have an element of being indivisible in the same way as the world of the spirit does. It's broken down. So the Moral says, and we'll, we'll leave it at this last point on this, on this and we're going to move further. If a person does half a mitzvah, what did they do? They took something that's supposed to be an indivisible whole unit and they, they went halfway and then, and then they stopped. They said, somebody else do it. You, you transferred what was supposed to be in the world of the, phys, of the spiritual and you treated it like the world of the physical in which you could do pieces and parts, but it's, it's a whole unit. And you have to live in, when, we, when we endeavor into the world of the spirit to be in that world of the indivisible. And therefore, it's really called after the person who brought it to its wholeness, its completion, and its whole thing. Okay, we'll leave it at that uh, for those. Of, yes? Um, well, I, I forgot the context, but if you know, lo alecha Excellent, right? So notice that any human being cannot complete anything. That's right. In other words, an individual mitzvah we try, but in terms of like the, in the wholeness, you're right. The, the, Torah, the mission of Perkei says this very clearly, like, no human being will ever say, like, I'm done. I did it all. And therefore, we need to know it's not upon you to finish, but it's not upon you to stop. Excellent. That's part of the dichotomy we live in, in this living in this world of the spirit while being physical, knowing we can't do it all, but trying to give it off to the next step. Beautiful. Okay, let's move on. Let's get to the, the bulk of uh, Moshe's speech. So uh, he gave us his introduction, Pasuk Beis, verse 2. Remember this path. So this is what he wants us to know for all history, all Jewish history we need to know. Remember the road, the path you took, Hashem led you for 40 years in a desert. Excuse me. You're going to have a couple of uh, 
complicated phrases and concepts as we uh, as we go uh, as we go through this. Hold on. The man, the man anoy that he literally would we as to afflict you. Inoy is an affliction. He afflicted you in the desert. to test you. to know that which is in your heart. Will you indeed follow in the ways of the mitzvos or not? So let's just read a couple of circum and keep track of the idea. So number one, Moshe says, remember. And your trip in the desert was difficult. There was a level of affliction that took place in the desert, and it was done on purpose. And what was the reason why you were afflicted for 40 years in the desert? Tests. It was a test to see whether or not you will follow in the midst. So, okay, let's keep going and keep track of what we have here. And then he repeats, He afflicted you, and he let you hunger. Is a literal translation. And he fed you man, which you never knew before. Your fathers never knew before. Your great, great, great. Like, no one ever saw anything like this before. So you were hunger, you were afflicted, you were fed man that nobody ever knew. In order that you should know. Beautiful phrase. It's quoted often in Jewish liturgy. It is not on bread alone that man lives. And that which comes from the mouth of Hashem is indeed that which a person lives. Let's just do one more pasuk and then go back. Your clothing never worn out from upon you. And your legs, your feet never cracked. Normally in the desert, walking for 40 years, your feet would be in terrible shape for all 40 years. So we have, on the one hand, you are afflicted and hungry and fed mun. And then, but your clothing never wore out and your feet never cracked or blistered despite the journey through the desert. Okay, so it's like a lot, a lot to unpack here. So... What's the, what's the affliction of the man? You are, now, if, if I would have said to you before we read these psukim, did the Jewish people go hungry in the desert? No. You would have said no, and you would have been correct. They didn't go hungry. Not only did they not go hungry, if I would have said to you, is the man like a good thing or a pleasant? Like how would we have visualized what the relationship between the Jewish people and the man was? So on the one hand, like, there's an amazing, miraculous food that fed every day. It fell every day and fed them. And Chazal described in great detail the miraculous nature of the man. I'm sure um, everybody has heard at some point the idea that it tasted like anything that you want. Like one of the most famous statements in all of Jewish history is that you can make the man taste like anything. That Torah never, the Torah itself never says that, by the way. But... Um, <laughs> Uh, found in the words of the sages, this idea that it had multiple types of uh, taste. It melted away in the morning. Each person got exactly what they needed, and then the extras, if you tried storing it, it didn't work, it melted away. It fell every morning. We know that it fell on Friday twice, a double portion, which we still commemorate, of course, with the 
double uh, lechem, the two, two, two loaves of bread that we have every Shabbos to commemorate that there was a double portion that fell on Fridays. And I, we know a lot about the mud. But Moshe here phrases it in a way that I don't think we would have on our own come up with, that the experience was an affliction and it was a test and that we were hungry. That's an interesting way of looking at it. But Moshe says it very clearly, that that's how, how we look at it. So what, what, what's the affliction? What's the affliction in man? And here the Rashbam and others say, I use the Rashbam because he does it in one single line, um, and it is, it is so uh, significant. It pierces our own understanding of the way that we function in life. The affliction was, as we said, how often did the man fall? Every day. And whatever portion that you needed, what happened to it after, by noon, after the day that it melted away, it was gone, it was done. Which means, every single day of your existence in the desert, when you went to sleep at 8 o'clock at night, or you wanted, you're done for the night, and you open up the cupboards, and what do you see? Nothing. Nothing, bare. You probably could save a little bit for a midnight snack, but for the next morning, nothing. Maybe they did midnight. Maybe that's how they did it. There was no midnight snacking in the desert. That would have been nice. Cupboards were bare. We, we, we thank God, generally live in a way in which I have what I need, not just for today, but I have what I need for tomorrow and the next week and probably a chunk of time after that. And so when I go to sleep at night, there's a certain level of, I'm good. And if that gets crushed a little bit below what we're comfortable, let's say we want, what I'm making up numbers, I want three years worth, I have less than that, I want six months, I want a month. But what happens when I don't have, I only have three days of food, three days of money, that's all I have left, that's panic time. Right? Three days? I mean, there are people, many people in the world who live that way. Right, one from day to day, literally. I mean, we talk paycheck to paycheck. I have three days in my cup. I have, that's all I have. That's a way to live? That's a panic, right? That's, that's the essence of it. What am I going to do? 40 years, 40 years the Jews walk through a desert. A desert. No reserves. No reserves, no nothing, no natural resources. Their source of water is a miraculous well that follows them, the well of Miriam, or at certain places it comes out of a rock, just as normal, right? So there's no source of water for a, in a desert of a nation of people. There's no source of food other than the fact that it falls from heaven every day, but just what you need for that one day. You want to know where the affliction in the mun was? Where's the affliction? So the Rashbam, who's a grandson of Rashi in his commentary in Chumash, says, that is an inui she'ein pas b'salo, when you have no bread in your cupboard, when there's no bread in your basket, and you don't know where, I mean, you know where it's coming, but this is, not a, this is a miraculous relying on God type of thing. That is an affliction. And Hashem says, but why did I afflict you? In such a way. You didn't go hungry in the perspective of you didn't have what to eat. Everybody had what to eat. You went hungry from the perspective of where am I getting it tomorrow from? And that's to teach. The Gemara asks a very simple question. The Gemara says, 
Why is it that the man fell every day? Wouldn't it have been easier if the man would have fallen once a week and they would gather, they go out, and you bring a basket with you and you gather for the week or once a month? Wouldn't that be easier every day you got to go out and gather? So the Gemara, in its uh, traditional way, says, I'll tell you a story to answer your question. Once upon a time, the Gemara says, there was a king, and the king had a prince who he liked very much, and he told the prince, I'm going to support you. You don't have to worry about anything. You will have everything, and I will give you a check. Come in on January 1st every year. You will receive your check from the kingdom, and you'll have everything that you need to live. And every January 1st, you come in, and you'll get what you need. Says the Gemara, in that parable, how often does the prince come in to thank the king? Once a year. year. On January 1st, he comes in, he receives his check, and he says, thank you very much. And so the king said, I don't like this relationship at all. Instead, he says to his son, the prince, you can come in every morning and receive your daily rations. How often does the prince come in and say thank you to his father, the king? Every day. Every day. That's exactly what it's about. That's exactly what it's about. So we lived for 40 years in a training ground, literally in a training ground, for what we were going to need for the rest of our lives, when even though the food doesn't fall from heaven and now it's going to grow out of the ground, but not by bread alone does man live, but through the word of mouth of Hashem. This is a training ground. This is a training ground to see, will we follow in the words and uh, the pattern of that which the Torah set out for us, in that which we learned in the desert that Hashem will provide, and sometimes the cupboard is bare, I don't know where it's coming from. But it was a, and that was a difficult nisayon, that was a test to teach us. We went into the land of Israel ready to believe. Because as you all know, if there's any place in the entire world where a Jew has to believe because things don't make sense, it's not logical, that's, that's the land of Israel and our ex- existence in the land of Israel. A land that somehow we've turned into green, into blossom and it blooms and it provides everything, but one has to believe and know it's not because of me, but it's through the gifts that Hashem has given us and this is the place where, uh, where we learned all of that and it was done in a way that didn't make any sense. Your fathers didn't know this. Your grandfather, you had no tradition to say like, oh, don't worry. Meaning, a farmer also can say that. Like, this doesn't make any sense. But the farmer, the new farmer, was he's growing up the child of the farmer, the farmer can teach him, this is how it works, son. You plant a seed, and then a couple months later, it's going to grow. And then but what happens when the mud falls from heaven? And I don't know what to say to you, son. I've never seen this before. Can a human being live for 40 years this way? I don't know. We're going to find out. And that was the experience that we had for uh, 40 years, as the Ramban adds that last comment. Okay, let's learn a little bit more. Okay, so the next thing was, after the test of the man, then we have this idea that your clothing never wore out and your feet never cracked or anything. So Rashi points out on the idea that your clothing never, that's a miracle, obviously. If you take a garment and you wear it in the desert for 40 years, it should wear out. It should be sweated through to the degree where it is unwearable. And the sages pick up that the language of the Pasuk was Simlas Chalo Valsame Alecha. It did not, not just that it didn't wear out, but it never wore out upon you. Meaning it was always on you and you never even had to take it off. That's what do you mean, you never had to take it off? So Rashi quotes, sages say two things. Every morning, 
Excellent. That's point number two. Every morning, Rashi makes two comments. Number one, the Jews, when they would go out to get their mun in the morning, the clouds of glory that covered the camps, the Jew would just walk out and the clouds would go through the camp like a dry cleaning service, like a car wash. It would literally go right through them and their clothing every morning would be freshly cleaned and pressed so that it never went off of them. Meaning, your clothing not just did not wear out, but it never wore out from upon you. You never took it off, and it was fresh and clean every morning, like it came out of the cleaners. And Rashi says it never went off of you, meaning, and the children who left Mitzrayim, or who were born and were given their first little onesie, their clothing grew with them. The way a shell would grow with, a, uh, with an animal tortoise or, of sorts. So the children's clothing grew with them, and everyone's clothing was cleaned and pressed fresh. Hey, I want one of those. Me too. <laughs> I have one, but it costs me a few dollars every day. But, but we, we, so the morale asks the following question. The morale asks, whenever we experience a miracle, the morale says, you always have to ask yourself, why does this miracle exist? Because, he says, we have a, a concept which he traces throughout Chumash, Ein neis lechinam. There's no such thing as a gratuitous miracle for no purpose. It doesn't happen. So play the question out. Like, and what would have been if there wasn't this miracle of uh, these clouds of glory going through the, the camp and cleaning? What would what was the alternative? We would we would wash our clothing. We would have to wash our clothing and maybe a couple times a year go into town to the neighboring countries and buy new ones or make new ones. They clearly knew how to make things. They made all sorts of garments for the Kohanim and for the Mishkan. So there was some level of being able to weave. Like, so if, they, if we wouldn't have had this miracle, what was the alternative? We would have made our own and, and cleaned it. I have a better question for you. And until I read this puzzle for you this morning, if I would have asked you, what did Jews do for clothing? You ever think about that? Probably not, because it doesn't matter. Whatever they did, I don't know. Who cares? They washed, they bought, they made. Did you ever think, I ask you this honest question, did you ever think, what did the Jews do for clothing over 40 years? No. The reason is because, who cares? I don't know. They made it 40 years. They figured it out. They made, they bought, they washed. I don't know. So the morale says, so why is this necessary? Where'd they get their food? Good question. I'm curious. I don't know where they got, oh, the man. Where do they get their water? That's a good question. So the, we have several instances where the people complain about the water and they get water from Iraq or from the well of Miriam. But like, why is their clothing relevant? And the turnout motion now at the end of 40 years says, don't forget what happened with your clothing. It was always fresh and clean. You never had to buy or make. But why? Why is that, why is that necessary? So the Ramadan is an amazing thing. An amazing thing. The, the general necessities of a person as a, as a guest, or in general, is we need food, clothing, shelter, and we need water. Food, clothing, right? Food, water, uh, clothing, and, and shelter. When we were in the desert, where did that come from? So food, where did the food come from? I came from Hashem, we've been discussing the man. Where did the water come from? Basically straight from Hashem in some miraculous manner. Where did we live, our, clo- our shelter? was through the Sukkot that we dwelled in, which we commemorate with an entire yontiv. Ki ba Sukkot toshafti es b'nei Yisrael. I caused the Jewish people to dwell in these booths, which somehow we all managed, or some understand it to be literally the clouds of glory. That, it was all like we were taken care of. 
And then our last major need would be our clothing, the basic need of a human being. So the one else says an unbelievable thing. If we would have gone with this alternative, then it would have been that Hashem took care of us with food, water, and shelter. And then on clothing, he said, on this one, you're on your own. That's not how a person hosts, I guess. When you host someone, you host them the entire, the whole way. Can you imagine? Can you imagine someone calling you up and saying, I'm making a bar mitzvah, a shavu whatever the case may be, can you host my, uh, my cousins? Sure, absolutely, you say, I'll host them for Shabbos. So they come on Friday afternoon, they come, you have a room set up for them, everything is beautiful, very nice, towels and this and that, they come up Shabbos morning, can I have a cup of coffee? But nope! <laughs> the host of the bar mitzvah asked me to host you to sleep. I don't do coffee. They didn't ask. You go to their house for a cup of coffee in the morning. That, that's a host? You're coming to my house and I, I'll provide you a bed and a towel by like, no, I don't have coffee, sorry. And I have it. I just, you can't have. That's not hosting. That's not hosting. So the Noel said, Hashem said, for 40 years, you're my guest. I'm taking care of you. It's a training ground in which we're going to learn a lot of different things, but you're basically mine because you can't live here on your own. So I'm going to take care of your food and your water in your shelter. You could take care of your clothing on your own. You could figure it out. You could wash it, or you could buy new ones, or make ones. You can. But then from my end, Hashem says, it would be as if I took care of like 80% of your needs, and the rest, I left you on your own. That's not how I function. Can I prick the balloon? Can you what? Prick the balloon. You could try. Shemot Lamed Hay. Yeah. What am I looking at? Okay. Today is Rabbi Shulamim Mitzrayim played Ketzer to play Zahav to Smart Loaf. 100%. They borrowed clothes. So they, had, so they had clothes. Correct. They had the Egyptians' clothes. 100%. Not just one outfit. Whatever they had, whatever they had never wore out. They, they, all, they, took, they all took clothing yeah, with them, 100%. But they had more than one outfit. Maybe they had more than one, but whatever they had never wore out. They never needed to, to buy new ones. They never needed to, uh, to redo them. 100%. That's why we have coffee. That's why we have coffee. We take care of everything. So the says the, the lesson that Hashem wanted to impart is I don't do things ha- halfway. When I'm, when I'm going to host you, I'm going to host you. And when I'm going to take care of you, I'm going to take care of you. And therefore, I do it in a way in which you have everything that you need. The clothing they had, maybe they had multiple, whatever it was, they never wore out. Even, even if they had three outfits each, 40 years, five outfits, I'll give you five outfits they took. 40 years in a desert, how long is it going to last? So it never, they never needed to worry about it because Hashem said, when you're under my control, everything is done. Let me do uh, one last puzzle before we uh, conclude. Um, where are we up to? Pasuk hey. V'yadata im livovech, and you should know, know deep in your hearts, ki ka'asher ye'aser ishes beno, Hashem elokecha miyasrecha. Very, very powerful Pasuk. As a father will chastise or rebuke his son, so too does Hashem rebuke you. Again, so he started with, remember the way that you traveled. Remember the 40 years. Remember the, the difficulty with the mun and the test and the hunger. Remember the clothing. Remember your feet. And just know that as a father rebukes his son, so too has Hashem rebuked you. 
what does that mean? As a father rebukes a son, so too. So, so excellent. So I, I believe, uh, I think it was the Ramban that I saw this in, points out there's a certain level of, um, there's a rebuking with love, but there's also, imagine, um, you don't have to imagine so hard, I'm sure everyone has seen this scene play itself out a thousand times. There are two uh, teenage boys, um, and they're either teenagers, we could imagine it younger, eight, nine-year-olds, and uh, they're uh, hanging around in shul doing things that they shouldn't be doing. Whatever the case may be, bouncing off the walls, throwing things off the walls, you name it, running, tripping, ripping, fighting, whatever. And while these two boys are uh, doing whatever they're doing, one of their fathers walks out of shul and sees these two boys. Right? They're both equally violating whatever the appropriate behavior for shul is. Equally. The father walks out of one, and what does the father do? Yes. Right? Goes right into his son, you know, hangs him out and says, blah, 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 blah. and the son's like, ah, bah, 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 bah. It's like, and the father will say, I don't care about that kid. Now, it's not that he doesn't really care about that kid, but the bottom line is, right? That's not my problem. I care about you. I care about your behavior. I care about who you represent. I care about what I want you to be. And it doesn't matter that you were literally doing something together with this other child. Father zeroes in on his son and pulls him out and says, son, you're not allowed to do that. Out. So Moshe uses that imagery and says, this training ground that you're going through with the man and the clothing, all the things that you're learning, and you say like, and there are times where, where we suffer. We just came out of a Tisha B'Av, 2,000 years of exile, so much pain, so many tears. And, and a Jew would have every right to look around and say like, like, I'm looking at all these other nations. Like, who deals with what we've had to deal with? Who else? Why? What's going on? What? Not fair. And this language of Moshe is just so powerful. You know, these two kids, put yourself back in these two kids, right? And they're fooling around, they're misbehaving. And so, and so the one child gets yanked out by his father and yelled at and screamed and go home and whatever he does. And this other kid is sitting there like, <laughs> I know that happened. All right? But that's a very childish look at it. We, the adults, looking at that scene, see a very different scene. We have one child who's sort of left on his own. There's nobody looking after him. There's nobody who cares. The child is just... Hefker, free-for-all. And then there's one child who, even though he got yelled at, and he got thrown out, and he got punished, but if we scale back, what do we also see? Yes, that's the child who has a, a parent looking after him, who, who sees what this child can and should become, and refuses to allow the child to run wild and not be shaped and formed. And we can debate what's the appropriate form of, of, uh, of chinuch and education and punishment. But this child is getting it, and this child is not. And so the child who's not might think that he's won, but he's lost. In the big picture, that's, that's not the way it goes. It's, it's the child who's blessed to have a father come out and follow him and watch him and, and put him on the right path and yell, again, the right, whatever the right methods are is a debate, not for now, but the child who has someone looking after him is the blessed child, is the blessed child. So Moshe says, 
don't look around the nations of the world and say like, I don't understand, it's not fair, I'm not doing anything different than them. It's true, you might not be doing something different than them, but you, you have a different mission. If I were to add to this little parable, which I think speaks for itself on its own, but if I were to add, if one of those two children was the rabbi's child, <laughs> and it was the rabbi who stepped outside in the middle of davening and sees his son misbehaving in shul in the same way as the other child is, and play that same thing out, and the child says, no fair, he says, it's right. You are different. You are different. And you're going to behave and learn... A, and the way Moshe says that a father rebukes or chastises his child, so too has Hashem seen you as banim atem Hashem You are children to Hashem. You have a different role, a different place in the world than every other nation, and Hashem is going to come and watch you and punish you and put you on the right path and guide and direct because, yeah, there's, he wants more. He sees more and knows there is more that you can be and do and uh, in the same way, as the child experiences that so too do uh, the Again, as I said, Moshe's words, they speak for themselves, but um, beautiful ideas. Wishing everybody a wonderful week. We'll see you all, Mirz Hashem, uh, next week.